Good morning, my name's Julie, and the first Bible reading we have this morning is out of uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, if you want to follow along. I'm reading from verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him. And they blindfolded him and were asking him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one that hit you? And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. When it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. Then they said, What further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered them and said, It is as you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they kept on insisting, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. Um, I'm just going to read it for us, and then I'm going to introduce us to Nat. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that who, he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Through our outer nature, is though our outer nature is wasting, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are not seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Nat, I want to invite you, mate, to come up. This is Nat. Sorry. Oh, wait, you've been told to turn, turn that on. Well, turn, this is Nat, by the way. So hi to Nat. Hi, everyone. 
They're excited to see you just by the way. I can tell. I'm yeah. feeling the excitement. Yeah. Um, so I've known Nat for a little while and it's been a joy and privilege to know you, mate. So some questions to get to know you a little bit. Uh, what football team do you go for? The Hawks. That's one of the reasons why I asked him to come. Um, mate, um, currently you, um, I'm guessing you're married. Yep. Because you're a very good looking guy. Yep. My wife's over there. Yep. Annie. Does your wife have a name? Annie. Yep. And the yep. kids, the three kids are over there. Wave kiddos. They're a bit shy. Yeah. <laughs> um, now they're hiding. Yeah. So Nat's uh, gone on a little bit of an adventure. Um, and uh, so we're called Canterbury Gardens Community Church. Uh, and recently I went to a fish and chip shop around the corner here and I was giving out our card and told them about, you know, I'm part of the local church down the road. And he didn't quite pick the church thing. So I gave the card about Canterbury Gardens, and he thought it was a garden centre uh, that we were part of, and I just explained that. But I always thought you were in Canterbury as well. Yes, yeah, it's very confusing. So what does your name, uh, your church name mean, mate? You're a pastor at Seed Church? Yeah, Seed Church, as in mustard seed. Yeah, um, yeah so we're called Seed. We, we came up with a name, I guess, for a bunch of reasons, but the main, is, main reason is there's a lot of parables in, in the Bible about seeds and especially the mustard seeds the smallest seed Jesus says but it becomes something big and great and yeah. um, and it's kind of the way of the kingdom it's a parable about the kingdom of God yeah. how it works kind of kind of slowly and almost um, silently mm. in, in some ways and um, but it's unstoppably powerful sure. and and I don't know if our church is unstoppable or anything like that but the kingdom of God is and we yeah. want to um, be part of that I guess yeah so we've had some of the family from Seed here. If you're part of Seed Church, can you just give us a wave? They're also yeah. excited to be we've part of Seed Church. We've got a lot Seed of young Church. adults who just can't get up before like lunchtime. Yeah, so, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Mate, well, it's a joy and privilege to have you here with us. I'm going to pray for you and pray for us as we hear from God's Word. Good. Uh, Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for the truth of your Word. Uh, we pray that you would speak to us now and speak to your, through your servant, Nat. Uh, that you would empower him through your Holy Spirit. Settle our hearts and minds to know you more. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm preaching now, am I? Yeah. yeah oh, okay. I wasn't expecting that. I was, my notes. Would you, would you like yeah. me to? Oh, no, no. Do you want to? You could. Is this where I stand? Is this the yeah. normal? Okay, I don't, I don't... Bit to the left. Is that better? Okay. Well, thanks for that intro, Shabu. It's great to be here. Um, great to see so many of you here. Uh, on this, on the day, really the day um, in the Christian calendar, isn't it? Good Friday, it's the, the greatest day and, and today we fix our attention on, on the moment, don't we? On the, on the most important day and moment in, in human history, uh, in cosmic history, hoping that today we will move one step closer, I pray and I hope, in, in knowing God, understanding the mystery of the cross, uh, and being made more alive. And what I want to talk about today is suffering. Suffering. There's, there's um, a lot of angles that you can look at the cross from. The, the, there's so many wonders to the cross. Endless, in fact. The scriptures tell us in First Peter that angels long to look into these things, talking about the, the cross, talking about the gospel. It's that rich, it's that profound, that even angels who've been around a lot longer than you and me still don't grasp the, the mystery. I love actually, I noticed up here, God's mystery revealed. There's this, this depth, this mystery to the cross that even angels long to look into and, and us as mere humans 
you know, hope to just get a glimpse of. And there's so many ways of looking at it, so many angles that we can approach the cross and all that Jesus accomplished on the cross. And today, the angle that I want to approach it from is, is the angle of suffering, okay? And the, the question of, of suffering, or the, or the sometimes called, I guess, the problem of suffering, is probably the, the biggest question that humans face, not just uh, philosophically, but actually, you know, just existentially as well. Existentially, because we we suffer, right? We we experience it. Um, but it, it doesn't take long for most of us to also kind of move to the the philosophical question: Why is there so much suffering, needless suffering, in the world? And so, what I want to offer today is three thoughts about what the cross of Jesus means for us. And for suffering, I do think that without question, the cross is the answer to suffering. I haven't read probably all the philosophies that are out there, but I've, I've read the main ones, and none of them come close to the cross in dealing with suffering. And the primary reason for that is because all the other religions and philosophies are just that. They're philosophies. They're, they're ideas about life and death and suffering and evil, whereas the cross is an event. It's an, a historical event. And I just want to put that up front. Christianity is a, is a religion. It does have ideas. Of course, it has ideas about life and, and ethics and so on. But it's more than just ideas. It's something that actually happened. It's based on an, an historical event, Jesus' death and resurrection. And so, like I said this morning, what I want to look at is the is the cross from the angle of pain and suffering. And I, and I want to submit that it tells us three things. It tells us three things about suffering. That it's real, that it's momentary, and that it's meaningful. Okay, it's real, it's momentary, and it's meaningful. So firstly, suffering is real. Suffering is real. Now this may seem like a maybe a silly point to some of you. You think, of, of course suffering is real. What are, you, you know, what are you talking about? Well, just, just hold on a second. If There's actually a whole religion, Buddhism, that's devoted to the idea that suffering is an illusion, that it's, it's not real. Buddhism, which you shouldn't dismiss too quickly, by the way, like any idea that stood the test of time, but Buddhism says that suffering happens to us because we kind of labour under this illusion that we are individual selves. And it's a bit like the ancient Greek Stoics. Um, Buddha taught that the solution to suffering is to get rid of desire, okay, through a change of, a change of consciousness, the detachment of our hearts from kind of transitory material things and people. Basically, get rid of desire and you will get rid of suffering, he said. So suffering is not real in this understanding. It's an illusion. And it's an illusion we can actually get rid of through self-transcendence. That's one view. Another view in our society, and, and one that's growing in, rapidly in Australia at the moment, is atheism. And again, I would caution you, if you're a Christian, from dismissing atheism too quickly. I don't believe it's true, but I'm... I'm sort of sympathetic to it in some ways, but let's think about suffering and atheism. Richard Dawkins, perhaps the most famous uh, and outspoken atheist, he's the professor of biology at Oxford University, 
he puts the atheist view of suffering really uh, well, I think, and succinctly in one of his books called River Out of Eden. He says it like this. Listen carefully to this. The total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. It's very well put, I think. Suffering just happens. And the reason, according to the atheist, that people struggle so mightily in the face of suffering is because we don't accept that it, that it never has any purpose. Okay? He, he actually says we humans have purpose on the brain. And what we need to do, according to Dawkins, is, is stop looking for meaning or purpose in suffering and just accept that it just is. There's nothing behind it. There's no purpose to it. Some people will get rich. Others won't. Some people will get killed in an earthquake. Others won't. Some people will get cancer. Others won't. And there's no rhyme or reason to it. So stop looking. So in other words, while suffering is real in the sense of, of you feeling terrible when it happens, it's not, it's not real in the deeper, more important sense that you, you intuitively feel, namely that it's meaningful. That's, that's the atheist view. But against these two views, Christianity, and above all the cross, screams out to us that suffering is absolutely, deeply, horribly real. Jesus suffered physically, emotionally, existentially, and the Bible depicts all of it in full graphic and gory detail, sweating, drops of blood, weeping, bleeding, crying out in agony. The suffering is real. It's real in his, his human mode and it's made even more real because Jesus is also God. And that's, that's also really important that, that not only does the cross validate human suffering, it actually takes it even deeper. The cross shows us that God himself suffers. God himself suffers. There's nothing kind of philosophical or sentimental, even religious about this. This is as real and as raw as it gets. On the cross, God experienced more suffering than you or I will ever experience. God the Son, taking the punishment for sin, experienced a cosmic suffering so awful we will never know it and even hell itself may not be as bad as that so that's the first thing the cross of jesus sets squarely before us suffering isn't an illusion it isn't all in our heads it's nor is it something god can't or hasn't experienced that's what makes it real in the most profound sense the cross tells us that suffering is real and that may not sound very comforting, but that in itself is comforting, I think. It means we don't have to pretend with suffering. 
when it hurts, it really does hurt. And even God himself understands. You can't actually get more validating than that. Yeah? But of course the cross is about much more than the reality of suffering. It's about the alleviation of suffering. And this leads to my second point. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, suffering is, or can be, if you're a Christian, momentary. Momentary. This is how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians, that that Shabu read out. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says this, this light momentary affliction, it's the word I'm picking up on, momentary or, or short, you know, short-term affliction. Remember, Paul's in prison, by the way, when he writes this. He's probably been tortured. <laughs> he's, he's, he is suffering. But he calls it light momentary affliction. And he says, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. To defeat sin, death and suffering, Jesus had to go down into the the belly of suffering. He had to go down into the black hole of suffering in order to eradicate it. And in just the next chapter in 2 Corinthians, Paul says these incredible words. He says, For our sake, he made, that is, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. That is, he made Jesus, who knew no sin, never sinned, he made him to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, this is a strange verse, and it's caused some confusion, but here's what one commentator says, which I think captures the meaning. He says this, Paul's language is careful. He did not say Jesus became a sinner, which would be untrue. Rather, Jesus became the representative sin bearer. He identified 100% with the sin of the world when he died on the cross. God treated Jesus as if he were sin itself. It's not that Jesus literally became sin, but he was treated as if he were sin itself. And this means that if you're a believer in Christ, if you have had your sin put onto Jesus, then any suffering you experience now is light and momentary. In light of eternity, it's short-lived, it's momentary. And the reason Paul can say that, if you look at the, carefully at the verse, the reason the Bible can say that is because of perspective, or perhaps a better word, comparison. Comparison, if you look at verse 17, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. See, the suffering that we experience now in this life is real, and it, and it is for many of us terrible, but it's nothing compared with the glory that's coming. I know many people today are, are cynical of this idea. So the, um, another famous atheist, Christopher Hitchens, will, will talk about how religions like, like Islam and, and Christianity, which offer this heaven, this eternal bliss for their, their, their followers, for their adherents, leads to all kinds of craziness and, and wickedness, like being a terrorist, he'll say. But what, what Hitchens and these people seem to miss is that with, with Christianity, at least, we're never called to kill 
for our faith, but we're actually called to, we are called to die for our faith. Eternal bliss is never held out in the Bible as a rationale to hurt other people, but it is held out as a rationale to endure hurt from other people. So Paul doesn't talk in a way that makes suffering trivial, but he does talk in such a way as to make suffering bearable and even hopeful. And this brings us to our third point and the deepest, I think, and most profound point, that suffering is meaningful. Through the cross of Christ, suffering can be meaningful. Now, I I quoted Richard Dawkins at the start of earlier saying that very clearly saying that suffering is meaningless right blind pitiless indifference is how he put it and really that's what you have to say if you really believe there's there's no heaven no hell no god that there's there's nothing good about suffering there's nothing redemptive in it at all it's just as dawkins says it just is blind pitiless indifference And actually, Dawkins struggles mightily with the fact that that people don't act like this. That that your average Joe, your average person, lives and acts, whether you're a Christian or Hindu, atheist, whatever, most people live and act as though suffering does have a purpose. And this is very frustrating to Dawkins. Especially, it seems, he's frustrated with his atheist brothers and sisters who on the one hand deny there's a God, but on the other, they keep on living in a way that shows they believe in a higher purpose. There's not many consistent atheists. But the cross of Christ gives us not just an inspiring story, but the grounds, rock-solid grounds, to believe that suffering is not meaningless, but totally meaningful. And this has to be my main point today and the the best news of Good Friday, although there's there's so much more good news. But the, the good news is that because of Jesus' death on the cross, the the ultimate wrongful and seemingly meaningless suffering, because of of Jesus' sin bearing death, all your suffering is totally meaningful. This text says our light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight. It doesn't say we'll be followed by an eternal weight of glory. That, that would be good enough. I mean, that, that would be good enough. But that's not what it says. The, the Greek word means produce, prepare, cause to bring about Our light momentary affliction is preparing, it's bringing about for us an eternal weight of glory. John Piper says about this text, he's a a pastor, a Christian pastor, he says, I will venture this, every millisecond of your pain from the fallen nature or fallen man, every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory that you will get because of that. I don't care if it was cancer or criticism. I don't care if it was slander or sickness. It wasn't meaningless. That's what I call good news. 
That's a controversial statement. But I believe it. I, I believe it because the text says it. But I also believe it because when I look at Jesus on the cross and I look at, at Peter denying him in the courtyard and I think about the women and the, and the soldiers and the crowds all watching on and I can imagine them thinking, this doesn't make sense. This is meaningless. This is completely meaningless. What good could possibly come from this man dying? Everything about this is just bad. You see, Jesus had told them he would rise again. He he told them about Sunday. But they didn't see it. They didn't believe it. And when Jesus rose from the dead three days later, his body was restored and it was repaired except for, remember the story? One thing. His hands and his side. He He had the holes. It's a peculiar thing. The, the nail marks are still there. And he actually asked Thomas, remember doubting Thomas, who really should be called believing Thomas because he does believe. He says, put, put your fingers in the holes in my hands. Touch it, see it. And why on earth does Jesus still have the holes in his hands where the nails went in? Wouldn't his body be more perfect if he didn't have the scars on his hands for all of eternity. You ever asked yourself that? Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be more beautiful, more glorious, if Jesus' body was scar-free? Wouldn't you say that's a more perfect body? That's a more redeemed body, yeah? No scars, surely. What's the answer? The answer, I think, is, is exactly this. Peculiar glory. It's part of Jesus' peculiar glory that he will have for all eternity these scars. He carries the scars on his hands, not because God couldn't or didn't want to heal him fully, but because his glory is in the scars. His glory is in the scars. This matches, doesn't it, with the picture of Jesus in the book of Revelation. You can't get more glory than when you read Revelation, right? Especially the first few chapters where the throng, the multitude is gathered around the throne of G- and Jesus is on the throne and they're bowing down and worshipping Jesus. And this is, this is how it reads in Revelation 5. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Think glory in this, in this scene. Then I looked, this is John writing, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This is mega glory. And it's around a lamb that is slain. It says, as though it had been slain. This kind of 
deformed lamb sitting there in heaven is the object of worship. And its deformities don't diminish its worship, they increase it. The scars and the blood and the sweat and the tears don't diminish his glory, they increase it. And the good news of the gospel for us who believe in Christ is that that can be true for us as well. If we're united with Christ, our glory too will be in our scars, our own peculiar scars. Man, that gives me hope. My suffering is not meaningless. Your suffering is not meaningless. We all suffer in different, peculiar ways, don't we? Suffering is not a blanket, generic thing. You have your life, your life, my life, so different in our experiences and the way we, we suffer, peculiar ways. But it's producing something, a peculiar glory, if you're united to Christ. That's a big if. If you're not united to Christ, I have to agree with Dawkins. There's nothing in it. It is meaningless. It's not, it's not helping you at all. So I don't know where you sit with Jesus right now. Perhaps you're, you're a full-blown committed Christian. Perhaps you're, you're here, you're visiting, you're, maybe you're unsure, you're, you're a skeptic. But let me, let me put this to you. The death of Jesus on the cross for our sins and his resurrection is the greatest thing that's ever happened to humanity. It's not for dreamers. It's not just for weak people. It's a real death on a real cross for real sin. And it really happened. What I think makes Good Friday so hard for us to connect to often isn't that it's unreal, but that it's too real. The implications for us, if it's true, are just so staggering and profound that we, we, we kind of struggle to appropriate them. Which is why we're here, yeah? Which is why we, we sing songs and we break bread and pray to get this thing, this most real thing there is into our dull and distractible heads. We know we need it. We know it makes all the difference. But it's so good. It's almost too good. Eternal life with God, given as a gift by a man who loved us and died for us even while we were his enemies. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we, we try in vain to get the cross into our heads, into our hearts, to grasp the, the fullness of the glory, the weight of what you accomplished, the love that was poured out. So Lord, we pray that you would reveal that by your spirit to us now. We're gathered here, Father, to, to gaze at the cross, 
We're gathered here, Father, too. To be gripped once again by your love poured out on the cross. And we ask that you would encourage us. It's this good news. Good news for those who are suffering, for those who are oppressed, for those who are poor, for those who are sick, for those who are weak. And so we thank you, Jesus. We pray that you would encourage us. We pray in your name. Amen.